if you're a, a secondary school student who's thinking about college, you want to think about the maximum challenge. You want to think about the place that will stretch you and push you the most. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Scholar Spotlight Podcast. I'm really excited for you guys to hear this conversation with our guest speaker, Dr. David Conley. From the mere selfish fact that he was so instrumental in helping me write my master's thesis, I feel like I cited him, you know, a hundred times. And um, so it's really cool, the power of social media, being able to, you know, talk to him on LinkedIn and, and get him on this episode. So without further ado, Dr. David Conley is a distinguished professor in education at the University of Oregon. For those who are unfamiliar with his work, Dr. Conley, he is a really, you know, he's a national thought leader on college and career readiness. He's worked extensively and really breaking it down. Like, what does it mean for students to be college and career ready? Um, a lot of the time that definition could have been ambiguous. And so he's given a more comprehensive definition for educators, practitioners, policymakers, et cetera. So, um, we talked about, you know, college and career readiness, some of his recommendations he would have for an intervention. And we talked even about his uh, most recent book, The Promise and Practice of Next Generation Assessment, which was published um, by Harvard Education Press and discusses the evolution of how of how we as educators, educators should think about how we assess our students and measure human performance. Um, I'm not going to say anything beyond that because I want you guys to purchase this book on Amazon because it is a very great read. And if you are interested in higher education whatsoever, Dr. Conley is the man to listen to. I hope you guys learn as much as I did. And as always, remember to like, subscribe, and rate the Scholar Spotlight podcast. We appreciate any suggestions on topics uh, that we, and people we should have. And um, let's get right to it. Hey, Dr. Conley, how are you? Well, hello. Uh, glad to be here, Jordan. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you you joining, taking the time. I know you are extremely busy, so I appreciate you getting back to me, and I'm excited about this conversation. So with every guest that we have on the podcast, we give them opportunity to walk us through kind of the arc of their career. I think it will be more fitting for this conversation for you to maybe walk us through why you decided um, to do the work that you're doing now, especially after spending 20 years in the public edu education system and, you know, some of your research interest and where you are now. Sure. Well, I do need to back us up a little bit. So okay. <clears throat> let me just give you a really quick overview. I mean, I started my career teaching in uh, public alternative schools in Berkeley and Oakland, California, and at a time when these were a brand new idea. And the schools themselves were what we called at the time multicultural schools, a very diverse student population. And I learned early in my career kind of the importance of equity and of providing um, opportunities for particularly students who've been underserved uh, to be able to advance more more quick, more rapidly and, and achieve higher levels of, of success and opportunity. So, I mean, that kind of shaped and formed me right from the beginning of my career. Then I spent, as you mentioned, I spent 20 years total in public ed working at all the different levels from classroom teacher to administrator to central office to uh, of course, then uh, to a state education agency, and then, of course, uh, then transitioning into higher education. And when I got into higher ed, <clears throat> I was brought in partly because I was somebody who had experience 
working in schools. I was in an apartment where almost no one, none of the professors had worked in public schools before. Mm. Um, and, it, and, you know, I think they thought I would just be the guy who kind of trained principals, but I, that wasn't what I was really interested in doing. I was really interested in the policy side of things and in the research side. <clears throat> and I very quickly got involved um, in Oregon with a lot of school reform that was going on at the time. And that school reform was really designed to uh, ensure that students were better prepared um, for college, but also for um, the world of work. And what became clear pretty quickly is that all those reforms that were going on in high schools, there was not anything going on in post-secondary ed that was, that was connected to it. And so it just so happened that I got the appointment to be the re representative for the state education system as a whole to work with the state education department on trying to connect the two systems up around these reforms. So that was kind of the impetus of it was my interest in policy, but that was really driven by this underlying concern about equity when it was really clear to me that we weren't, that the future, this was back in the early 1990s and it was really clear to me even then that the future for young people was to be able to keep learning beyond high school. Mm -hmm. that focusing on a high school diploma was not enough and having this clear separation between the people who are being prepared to keep learning beyond high school and the people who weren't <clears throat> was going to be a recipe for disaster economically for our country, but also socially. We, we, we can't have two classes of people. Everyone has to be capable of working at successfully and evolving beyond high school, uh, and, but keeping throughout that process learning throughout their whole life. That's really what we're, we're, we're having to confront now is a world in which People have to keep adapting and adding skills and being true lifelong learners. And college and certainly post-secondary in general is one of the best ways to do that. So that's kind of the, the driver, the, sort of the equity concerns along with the kind of the social economic concerns uh, drove me to try to figure out, to answer a question that I thought everyone had answered a long time ago, which is what does it really take to be ready to succeed in college? Right. The more I looked into it, the, real, the more I realized no one had really answered that question. What they've answered was, what does it take to be eligible to apply to college, which was a long ways away from what it takes to be ready to succeed. So th those are kind of the forces that we're operating. Yeah, no, I mean, I've seen that play out in just when I look at the literature prior to the work that you've, that you've done in terms of coining college and career readiness, what that really means that people weren't thoroughly describing that construct. Um, and then when, even when you get to measurement, you know, they were looking at, single test, you know, how you performed on that, on that test, that score. And with you in terms of coming up with a comprehensive definition, definition of what it means to be college and career ready, you know, the key cognitive strategies, the academic behaviors, key content knowledge. Like, I mean, it's brilliant. And I hope you don't mind that I cited it all throughout my thesis, my master's thesis. Um, oh, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I want you to kind of touch upon how you develop that construct specifically in terms of if it's evolution is something more comprehensive. Yeah. Well, it's pretty simple, really. Um, we did something that no one had really done before. We went and got people who taught entry-level college courses, mm -hmm. people who worked with students coming into college, <clears throat> and we asked them, what does it take for students to be ready to succeed in your class? So we didn't talk to admissions people. Uh, we didn't talk to testing people. We talked to people who were who taught in post-secondary institutions. At first, most of our research focused on universities, but then it expanded out 
to uh, community colleges as well. Mm-hmm. And I did a series of studies over about 10 years that looked at the same question from different angles, but it was always with the same method, which is let's really talk to the people who are teaching these classes or the people who are working with these students and let's ask them what's causing students to be successful or not successful. So what was interesting is that over time, we got the same kind of responses from everyone, whether it was at a at a MIT or a, a Stanford or whether it was at University of Oregon where I teach or whether it was at a community college eventually when we started doing work with those, we found pretty much the same patterns of responses. Now, you wouldn't think that's true. You'd think at the most selective universities that the issues would be different than at maybe an open enrollment um, state university, but in fact, the patterns were the same. And you identified them there in a second. I just let me go over them again just real quickly. What we what was striking was the degree to which college instructors said, look, the students come in here and they're just not really good critical thinkers. They mm-hmm. don't have cognitive strategies. They don't have ways to deal with complex problems or issues. What they tend to do is simply want to give an answer based on a, a right or a wrong type of a, of a proposition that everything needs to be right or wrong. Well, everything isn't right or wrong in college, and it certainly isn't in the work world. And that and the students really couldn't engage problem solving very well. They wanted, they'd been taught in high school, instead of true problem solving, what they'd been taught was to follow a series of steps. Right. In other words, it was procedural uh, in nature. So students would be given a problem in, in high school, and then they'd be told to follow the these steps to solve the problem, and then everyone would come up with the same solution. Well, out in college and in the real world, it doesn't really work that way. You can get really complex problems with different solutions and different strategies that you need to pursue. So those cognitive strategies were consistently mentioned as something that students don't develop all them. The content knowledge, um, interestingly enough, college instructors said, well, the content knowledge, uh, yeah, I mean, it's important, but we teach a lot of stuff they taught in high school, unfortunately, but that's what we do. We don't assume they know everything. So yes, I mean, it doesn't mean you don't need content knowledge. That's not what I'm saying. But if it's just content knowledge, absent an understanding of how to think, then it's not enough. And then uh, a lot of times high schools weren't focusing on the right types of prerequisite content knowledge. And even in some cases, they were teaching stuff that was college level, but it was taught at a very superficial level. In other cases, they were teaching material that was um, not going to be picked up again in college at all. So the content, there was a misalignment between the content knowledge students were getting in high school and the expectations they needed to enter that college course. The third area was uh, learning skills, the ability to learn, to know how to learn. And that encompasses things like time management and personal self-management includes study skills, goal setting. It includes knowing how to use technology. Um, It it includes uh, knowing how to take a test, how to study, how to uh, memorize the kind of things that you need to memorize. So it's a lot of different components. Now, of course, the highest performing students get taught all that Mm -hmm. and get encouraged to do that. The students who are more average performers and uh, who are struggling don't get taught learning skills. Matter of fact, they're taught to just, as I said earlier, follow directions, just kind of do the minimum. And so when they get those students get to college, they're challenged much more than students who are performing highly in high school because 
all of these learning strategies are, are as important as your content knowledge. Not knowing how to study, not knowing how to use a study group, for example, not having clear goals or how to set goals and break a complex task down into pieces to achieve it. These are all things that if you can't do them, you're gonna have a hard time in college, regardless of your content knowledge. And then the fourth area was transition knowledge and skills, which is basically understanding what it takes to get into how to pick a college, get into college, get that financial aid, and deal with the problems that always come up when you're in college. And what we once again, we find that um, a lot of students have access to what we call this privileged knowledge or college knowledge. Mm -hmm. We find that there's a lot of young people who have access to it, to their parents and their community, and maybe they took a college class already before they got to college. <clears throat> and there's many ways in which they, they're advantaged. We find that a lot of students who are first generation don't have access to any of that information. Right. And they really, they're overwhelmed. They, they don't make the right choice of a college. They don't um, follow through on the financial aid. They get to college, some, something goes wrong. Maybe a family member's ill, they have to go home or something, uh, they lose their job, uh, the, their part-time job they had and they all of a sudden can't afford it. And so one thing will throw them off the rails and the next thing you know, um, those students don't continue. They don't realize there's resources and strategies they could use to deal with the, those uh, issues. So, so the cognitive strategies, the content knowledge, the learning skills, and the sort of the college knowledge, readiness skills are the four areas that what we found is if you if students have all of those, they succeed. If they're missing any one of them, they struggle. There's so many directions that I could take this. Um, one thing that I noticed when I was doing my thesis, because I looked at the role of social emotional learning skills, what would you say that falls in line? I mean, would that be more learning strategies? And i.e. I'm talking about like self-efficacy, having a yeah. sense of belonging, academic motivation, like those skills, yeah. those kind of soft intangible skills, where does that fall in line with that? Well, we put those into two categories. We, we put them somewhat into the, the learning content knowledge, mm -hmm. and, but we put them also significantly into the learning strategies. Okay. So part of it is your attitude toward learning content. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of scholars have identified the fact that if you believe that effort is an important factor to doing well, you're better off than believing that ability is the most important factor. So if you believe that by trying harder in, in, in intelligent ways and really focusing, you can deal with challenging learning situations and, and, and content, you'll do much better than if you're someone who just thinks, well, I do, I'm great at math, but I'm not great at writing. So, you know, I, I can never be a decent writer. Well, you can certainly learn to be a good writer if you, if you apply yourself through effort. So those are examples of kind of what people call social emotional learning. I think it's kind of a, uh, I, I don't love the term myself. I do like you know, really focusing more in on those learning skills, like, mm -hmm. like self-efficacy. And self-efficacy is just the idea that you can take control of the variables in your world that are going to make you successful, as opposed to saying, I can't do it because of some external factor. Right. My teacher doesn't like me, or I can't do it because the administration is, the, the rules for financial aid aren't fair. Mm -hmm. I mean, those, these factors that are out of your control most diminish your self-efficacy, but self-efficacy is really saying, I am going to take control of the things in my life that I need to, to make me successful in this setting and to believe, and then to, to, to uh, actually, in fact, operationalize it and, and, and do take control of your own life. So those are all some social emotional things that fit into the, the model. I just slice them up a little bit between the content, learning content knowledge and being, and then uh, you having effective learning skills. That makes sense. That makes sense. I want to transition, this is still related, but 
it kind of pertains, like you said, with, uh, with first generation students. More often than not, if they're coming from under-resourced, underfunded school systems, one of those key tenets is missing. They may not have someone who is explaining to them what these learning strategies are. And so, or they are not with the, with the key cognitive strategies, they may not be as prepared. So then they go to college and they have to take remedial courses. So if you had to make, create your own intervention, what would you, which kind of barrier would you tackle first? And then how do you think that students, if they are like in that sort of like, if they're missing one of these components, how can they, you know, how can they, how can they get there in terms, in terms of being? Yeah. Well, I'd say, I'd start off by saying that unfortunately it can be different for almost every student. Mm -hmm. So it's really, it's really difficult to, to think about an intervention. Um, I will say there's a lot of them out there. You know, AVID, College Promise, you know, there's College Now, and there's a lot of different uh, ways, uh, programs that are designed to support students in developing exactly the types of skills and strategies that I've talked about. There's also more comprehensive curriculums out there, like International Baccalaureate is a curriculum at the high school mm -hmm. level that's yep. more challenging. Uh, Cambridge is another one. Uh, it's another program, not quite as well known as IB, but it does the same sort of thing. And they both end up with with a summary exams, and those can those having that kind of a curriculum, and and having those challenges in your school for you, I think is important. So, but if you say, if we sort of just put aside the fact that we've got all this variation among people, and say, you know, where do we start? In an ideal world, we start with with um, the learning skills to make sure you've got those in place, and if you can manage your time, if you can set priorities, if you can set goals for yourself. Um, if you know how to study, if you know how to prepare for a test, if you know how to work collaboratively with others, if you can use technology effectively, all of these things. And then with those learning skills, you put those into play by being given a challenging curriculum, um, one with cognitive strategies required with a lot of thinking that's required that you do with really appropriate content, the contents aligned to the, to the university. And then of course, beginning really in middle school, you get exposed to the college knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just a night, one evening as in your junior year where you're taught about financial aid, but you learn about financial aid from middle school on. You learn about all the choices that are available in post-secondary ed from middle school on. You know, we, we did some research that demonstrated that students who are, that first generation students tend not to know the difference be between community college and colleges and universities. They don't know the cost differences they don't really understand the significance of the different levels of program and what you can accomplish at each level. So people, young people need to be taught that from middle school on. Mm -hmm. So it's really a combination of uh, getting those learning skills that are universal. <clears throat> I'm not going to let you learn anything and I'll let you keep learning throughout your life. And then being given this opportunity to develop your cognitive strategies by engaging in appropriately challenging content at the same time that you're given support by the school to, to acquire that college knowledge that you need. So that's kind of, you know, there really aren't any programs that do all of what I just said, but right. there are programs that do parts of what I said in kind of different combinations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now that makes sense. I want to transition to your book that you published in 2018, the promise and practice of next generation assessment. I thought that the thesis behind it is very well thought and comes at a time especially now uh, with COVID as we're rethinking, a lot of universities are rethinking, you know, test optional, et cetera, that it's important that we're having 
in terms of how we are measuring human performance, that it's relevant, it's timely to the way our society is evolving. Could you maybe talk to, to me about, and our audience, about sort of your reasoning behind authoring this book and what educators and policymakers uh, should be aware of? You know, I, I came to work on assessment after years and years of working on the standards that you need to be college ready. I realized we're not measuring most of those things. If you think about what I just said over the last few minutes about what's important, mm -hmm. how many of those do we measure? We measure hardly any of them. Matter of fact, one of the only things we measure is content knowledge. Right, right. Uh, maybe high school grades capture a little bit more about indirectly about your study habits and some other things, but we don't have measures of how well prepared you are in terms of your learning skills. We don't even have good measures of how of your cognitive strategies because the kind of standardized tests we give are multiple choice types of answers. And that's really not a good way to figure out uh, how you deal with a complex, ambiguous problem, for example. So the, the, the heart of what I'm getting at in the book is to say that assessment has not been designed in general to serve the right purposes. And it's not generating enough of the kind of information we need. And we've got to be willing to explore how to capture information about areas we know are important, but we don't, and we, but we know they're difficult to measure. Mm -hmm. So to understand if you're a goal-driven student, Jordan, if like you were somebody who had goals for yourself, and if you were trying to achieve those goals and aligning your behavior to achieve those goals, that's an important predictor when you were in high school to know if you were going to go on to post-secondary ed. Um, so if we could, if we could gather information about um, the degree to which a student is goal-oriented and what the, whether their behaviors align with achieving their goals, that would give us some useful information about their probability of succeeding in college. At the same time, what do you think it would do in terms of signaling to high school students if they knew that they were going to be measured on their goal setting? I think an awful lot more yep. students would be setting goals for themselves. Right, right. <laughs> and people say, well, then, you know, how are we going to tell uh, who's better and worse? Well, we don't have to tell who's better and worse. If we've got a model where we want everyone to go to college anyway, hmm. then we want to send the right signals. Now, you can argue at the very high end, how do we deal with the most selective universities? And they already have a system in place where they collect all sorts of information on students way beyond test scores. You know, but we won't, but we're not willing to do the same thing with the rest of the system. Now, places like um, the UC system in California or private universities like Stanford or MIT have a system they call comprehensive review. In other words, they look at everything mm -hmm. and they look at it holistically. Um, they, they take into account if you've got a, maybe you don't have the best SAT score in the world, but you, you're, you've showed a, a, a tremendous perseverance, you know, in developing um, services in your local community at the same time that you've taken the most challenging courses that you could. Well, that gives them a little more information. Right. Um, right. But, but that system is not open to everyone. That's open only to this, a small proportion of students. Um, and then, of course, as we all know, they, they try to kind of game that. They're all, they're all like, they get a, uh, you know, a private counselor who tells them how to look the best for that. So even that system is not sending all the right signals, and it doesn't send any signals to the vast majority of students, particularly not first-gen students who don't know anything about comprehensive review or college counselors or any of that. But what if all colleges collected a profile of information across a lot of these areas we're talking about, 
that let's say, for example, in high school, you were asked to do a large project that took several weeks to do, and you had to turn in um, elements of it at particular times along the way. Well, it'd be a way to judge your time management. If you were turning things in on time at several points along the way in this larger project, and then you completed the project on time, a teacher could certify that you had that your time management skills were effective. Right. Now, if you weren't turning the pieces in on time, you didn't get it done on time, the teacher could say that they weren't as effective. So we can measure things that are important and we can measure them in pretty straightforward ways without creating whole new assessments or burdens on teachers. The trick though then is to accumulate that information. So one other example is we can give much more complex assignments in high school that require cognitive strategies. We can give students research projects to do. For example, um, the International Baccalaureate has a thing called the extended essay, mm -hmm. which is students write a 2000 word essay that's supposed to be about an original piece of, of research that they do. So it, it's it, the examples of these types of methods are out there and uh, certainly problem-based learning, which has become much more and project-based learning, which have both become much more prevalent and people are looking at to a greater degree. These create ways that you can, if, if nothing else, you incorporate them into the high school grade and the grade becomes a better measure of your thinking skills. And then the, the, the high school teacher, all the high school teacher does is in, included along with the grade is a list of the assessments that the high school teacher used. So now the university can take a look at that and say, oh, right. this teacher used right. really good challenging assessments that required more thinking. So we can look at the scores that the student got on some of those assessments that, that were done in class, or even at their, we can look at their cumulative grade and it tells us more about them. So all the while we're sending the right signals to students about what they need to be doing. Right now we're sending the wrong signals. We're telling them all you have to do is be compliant, follow the rules and do what you're told, complete your assignments, don't do anything more than the minimum. And at the same time, teachers kind of have sent the wrong message because of grade inflation mm -hmm. that everybody deserves an A. So our grading system isn't telling the colleges about whether students are ready, right, right. but our grading system isn't telling our students much about whether they're ready. I mean, that's a valid point and I've seen it play out again. You know, we have a lot of high achieving students in their senior year, never got a B and they get to college and they struggle because they're like, but then, but then they talk to me and they're like, but Mr. Bonner, I did so well in high school. I don't understand why, like, I can't write this essay now. And I'm like, two totally different worlds, you know, and we're not necessarily bridging that gap. I mean, well, so why do you think we're not making, sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry, writing is, uh, I, thought was, I just want to interject, writing is one of the areas uh, where it's most prevalent. Yep. Is that high yep. school, the standards for writing for high school students uh, and the standards for writing with college students are massively different. But anyway, go ahead, I think you're in the middle. No, middle massively different. Um, why are we making the investment? Like across the board, like why, I mean, is it just, you know, why? aren't people necessarily seeing this as viable? I mean, maybe people are, maybe I'm just ignorant, but I don't well, know. Well, I, I mean, I, yeah, you can kind of look at a glass half full, glass half empty in a way. I mean, I think colleges are starting to change what they're doing. Technology has helped us a lot. We can capture way more information than we used to be mm -hmm. able to. Uh, you can take a, you can, you can include more information um, in a student's profile now than you could. We have projects like the, the called the Mastery Transcript Project, which is a group that's working with schools that are trying to develop 
transcripts that are a lot more meaningful and have a lot more information in it. So we're learning how to transmit that information from high school to college. Um, you have a lot of different programs that are developing different types of assessments in high schools using different methods. But you know, I mean, change is hard for schools. The teachers don't really have time to add new skills. They get they learn how to do something a particular way, and then that's kind of how they do it. The students don't have a lot of incentive to do beyond the minimum. We don't. We haven't set the we've set the system up as I mentioned earlier, to encourage them to do the minimum and not, not the maximum. Right. So there's a lot of, of these factors that come into play and we really don't fund it. I mean, we really don't come up with funds that are dedicated to getting more students really ready for college. I mean, we may come up with financial support once you get to college, uh, but there is, there's really not the same level of support. Occasionally, you know, some states have supported students taking advanced placement courses, the AP program and paying for their tests. So I shouldn't say that there's no support. There is, but it, the getting it's getting this to the kind of middle of 50% of the students, you know, the ones who are not targeted already to be high right. achievers and getting them more motivated is, I think, the real challenge because those are the ones who will suffer the most if they don't uh, get fully ready to go into college. So it's really complex. I don't know that I can answer it really succinctly for you, except to say on the positive side, I think, more and more and more people continue to talk about the importance of what many people call 21st century skills yeah at yeah. which the acknowledgement is that those skills are different than just content knowledge those skills do involve solving problems and critical thinking and working with diverse teams and um, you know taking initiative and so forth mm -hmm. and there's more and more acknowledgement that that's really what we want out of students and i think it's i do think it's having an effect the effect is uneven and I don't think it's equitable. I, and I don't think that the effect is the same in, in schools that have high proportions of students who would be first generation as it is in high performing schools already. So I think we've got to uh, make a concerted effort to, to support the development of programs in all schools that engage students in the development of 21st century skills, which in the process will hit more of those areas of readiness that we've been talking about. Right. Right. So, I mean, I've already alluded this to this before, but at Delaware College Scholars, a lot of our, our preferences given to first generation students. Um, I wanted to ask you, like, what's one piece of advice you would give them as they start to think about post-secondary options and opportunities? I'll, I'll mention one area we haven't mm -hmm. um, talked about, which is uh, a phenomenon called undermatching. That's where you have highly qualified students who select a less rigorous or less challenging post-secondary institution maybe because it's closer to home or maybe because they don't think they could do as well at a more challenging one. Um, and interestingly enough, the research shows that students who undermatch uh, perform less well when they go to the less challenging uh, post-secondary institution than the students who challenge themselves. So I guess one little piece of advice we haven't put on the table yet is to say, if you're a, a secondary school student who's thinking about college, you want to think about the maximum challenge. You want to think about the place that will stretch you and push you the most. Mm -hmm. You don't want to just go to the one that's safe where you you're, think you can keep getting those A's that you got in high school. It may be a place where you get C's the first semester. That's okay. I mean, my youngest daughter went to a very challenging university and um, got was, was going to get some C's her first year and she'd never gotten any C's before. And we went and visited her in the middle of her first term, she was distraught. She said, I don't belong here. I'm going to get some C's. And I said, no, that's good. 
That's, that's what you want to be. That's what you want to happen. You want a place that stretches you and that makes you work up to the, you know, up to your full level. And exactly. And of course, over the next year, she did, you know, she pulled, pulled herself up to that level and developed those learning strategies to a greater degree and figured out what she really needed to be doing and did fine the rest of her time. But so I I think you're, hopefully a, a lot of your students will, will will think about what's the most I can challenge myself right. when I go on to college, not the least. So I want to transition to our ring the bell segment of the podcast. This uh-huh. same two, same two questions to every guest speaker. First question, what's one piece of advice you would give your 16 year old self? Well, that's what I was laughing about because yeah. I, I was, you do not not want to know too much about my 16 year old self. I, I got in a lot of trouble. Um, so if my first piece of advice was don't get in so much trouble, I guess would be the first one. But um, I don't think you're, a lot of your students aren't in that boat. So I, hopefully they don't, they don't need that advice. I, I think the second piece is really, uh, I did not give a lot of serious thought to what I was going to do beyond high school. Now, this may not be as relevant to, to your, your listeners, but for me, uh, I would have said, give, my, give it a lot more thought what you're going to do beyond high school and make sure you're taking the most challenging courses you can take in high school. Uh, I, I, I've always done well academically in my life. I mean, I, I came from a kind of a blue collar working class type of an environment where I wasn't challenged that much in high school, but I could have done more mm-hmm. and uh, I wish I'd done more. And I think if I went back, I would do more. So those, I mean, those are some of the things that, that I probably would, would remind myself yeah. about and kick myself for not doing. Yeah. What's your why? Yeah. I mean, I've been doing this for a long time. And so why have I been doing this for a long time? And well, I mean, you know, this is so cliche, but I mean, I sort of want to make the world a better place. Um, it's what, when I was in, you know, I went to college at Berkeley, UC Berkeley, and I was there in the midst of the, the uh, tumult, the demonstrations and the, uh, all, all the political action that went on there. And I was very involved in all of that. Um, but I reached the conclusion that that wasn't going to change the world, that you change the world through changing the next generation of through the education process. And so I devoted my life <clears throat> to that. And I, so I, I guess that even up to the present time, my why is pretty much is what I'm doing going to make, make the world a, a better place. <clears throat> uh, and and it, it's, that's pretty expansive, but on maybe a little more specific level, can we adapt our systems, educational systems and social systems to the fact that our economy has changed? I mean, mm. we have a, we have a brutal and ruthless economy that's going to be eliminating millions of jobs over the next decade to automation. It's going to be eliminating entire areas that have been entry-level occupations for for a first-generation type of people for a year for a long time, and it's going to be creating massive new opportunities, almost all of which are going to require education yeah. and the ability to acquire new skills. So that's been my message for the last 25 years. Um, and so part of that, you know, my make the world a better place is just trying to get the word out and keep it out there that we're not educating people for the right future if we're not preparing them for this world that's going to be actually far more disruptive the next decade than it has been the last. As much as people think we're in a period of, of uh, you know, tumult right now, I mean, just, you know, hold, hold, hold on to, you know, hold, hold on to your hat because we're, we're, things are going to get... Uh, going to get be bumpy flying from here yep. on out. Yep. I agree. I agree. 
Wise words from Dr. Conley. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for this time. And we enjoyed having you on the podcast. So, well, thank, thank you, David. You. Thanks, for, uh, Jordan. I appreciate it being here.